Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. I have no idea why they did this experiment, but... When they hook up a, a stimulus to rats' lateral hypothalamus and they give it a lever that will stimulate that region of the brain, rats will keep pushing the lever until they literally collapse. In case you're wondering what that area of the brain is, that's uh, known as also the ventral tegmental. But what it really is is the area of your brain that triggers the release of dopamine. Dopamine is the excitatory, fixated, driven search, I need something, I'm on a campaign to get something, neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters, by the way, work on your nervous system. Hormones work on your glands. Uh, So that's just the basic difference, but all the important, most of the important neurotransmitters have have their hormones variation to them. So when dopamine is triggered, it creates an excitement and a sense of reward that encourages us to proceed. It's definitely triggered by any activity that offers any kind of a reward, any kind of an enhancement in our tribal status, any kind of sensual pleasure. And it's especially triggered by rewards that are not doled out by any discernible pattern. So if there is a system in your life where you might get a reward and you might not, you don't know when it's going to come, but it does come sometimes, that activates your dopamine, uh, the ventral tegmental dopamine reward circuits. It makes, you, it makes us excited. It makes us fixated. We focus all our attention on it, and for a little while it feels really good, but uh, not for very long because dopamine is not actually synaptically present for very long. Once it's released, it tends to be flushed out or reabsorbed. So if you get too little dopamine, you'll find that you'll be depressed, you won't be able to, you'll be filled with fatigue and apathy, you won't want to do very much, and that's why uh, when people uh, have monopolar depression, where they can't get out of bed, they're in a brain fog, they're treated with Wellbutrin, which essentially slams them with dopamine. If you have too much dopamine, if your dopamine becomes dysregulated, well, guess what? You will wind up psychotic. When people are treated for um, any form of psychosis, such as uh, schizophrenia, paranoia, and bipolar disorder, what they are given are drugs like Depakote, Risperdal, Seroquel, Abilify, and those drugs very simply limit or regulate the amount of dopamine present. So you need to have the right amount, too little depressed, too much psychotic. 
If you do want to raise your dopamine levels, well, you could go out and buy some cocaine. I wouldn't recommend it because you'd slam your brain with it exogenously and then it would deplete it. And when you slam your brain with dopamine and then it goes away, cortisol is released, you feel really bad. Then you need more, and that's what creates addiction. Essentially, abnormally, uh, essentially stimulating dopamine, making yourself feel ex exceptionally excited, and then having it be taken away. So another way you could raise it is simply by going to a health food store and buying tyrosine, uh, eating a lot of carbs, milk, cheese. That's why people, when they're feeling somewhat depressed, tend to gravitate towards carbs because they unconsciously realize that it makes them feel better. There are a couple of things in our culture that activate uh, dopamine and make us addicted very quickly. As I said, anything that gives off rewards that are not predictable. So what would that be? Well, guess what? You have one. It's called a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Anytime there's a message that may come in from somebody you're interested in or somebody that might have something good to tell you, but you don't know when the messages are going to arrive, it activates preoccupation. If you know anything about attachment, uh, preoccupied attachment or anxious attachment heavily activates the dopamine reward as well as the stress systems in people's brains. Another thing that classically um, activates dopamine is gambling. Gambling machines are actually programmed to give out rewards that are not predictable. And so it's exceptionally addictive, as is people who become bargain hunters, uh, because you don't know where the bargain's going to be. You just know it's going to be out there, but you don't know when it's gonna, you're going to get it. So, uh, interestingly enough, our felt sense of time is controlled by dopamine. When there's too little dopamine present, it feels like time crawls. And people who actually very often struggle with hyperactive uh, uh, disorders often, very often have, often, very often, often have not enough dopamine present time feels slower for them, and so they try to unconsciously activate more dopamine by essentially becoming hyperactive and focusing their attention, looking for something that will stimulate dopamine. This is why manias with people who have uh, bipolar uh, feel very addictive and why it's very difficult to get people with bipolar disorder to take medication that will very often be very helpful because the mania, when the brain is actually firing lots of dopamine and the thoughts and the pattern seeing and the feeling of figuring out everything, it actually feels very, very pleasant. It's only when there's the subsequent dive into the dopamine reduction where they suddenly feel depressed that bipolar disorder becomes something that is really unpleasant. Anything that activates our do any activity that habitually stimulates dopamine uh, in short-term bursts is going to become addictive, whether it's food, sex, 
cocaine, stimulants, meth, uh, gambling, shopping can become addictive. And it's very important to know how to understand when we are activated by that addictive circuit. Now, well, dopamine has a lot of presence in your left brain, which is why it activates such manic thoughts and obsession and fixated attention. In the right hemisphere is largely uh, the realm of serotonin, otherwise known as 5-HT. That's the neurotransmitter that regulates your mood, makes you feel good when it's present, reduces a bit of anxiety, helps uh, process appetite, makes you feel satiated, uh, helps you digest. So when there's enough serotonin present, it's easier to, to digest your food. Interpersonal connection raises serotonin, as does moderate exercise, and unfortunately for us, daylight. Uh, this time of year our serotonin plummets to the low Uh, massages raise serotonin and meditation has been shown to actually significantly raise serotonin in when they take urine samples of people before and after they meditate it spikes If you want to lower your serotonin, I don't know why you would ever want to do that. That's another way of saying you want to become anxious and depressed and you're really happy with feeling prone to mood plummets. But if you ever wanted to do it, well, very simply, isolate yourself from other people because social connection is the biggest trigger for serotonin. And obsess. Obsessing will trigger both cortisol and uh, dopamine, but it will shut down the serotonin, which regulates your mood. And all compulsive addictive behaviors have a tendency to diminish serotonin. So you want to keep your serotonin levels high. You want to make sure you're not, dop- you're not excessively or needlessly activating your dopamine reward system because you've already got that overstimulated because you're a member of the 21st century. You've got a cell phone. You've got email. So you're already needlessly triggering it all the time. And if you're on Facebook, forget about it. Uh, GABA. What does GABA do? Well... GABA, GABA, hey, for those of you. <laughs> GABA immunobutric acid uh, lowers your cortisol, reduces anxiety significantly. So it is the reason why people take benzos to reduce anxiety disorders is because it's an exogenous source of GABA. If you are struggling with an anxiety disorder or you, in certain situations, trigger vulnerability, you want to raise your GABA levels GABA promotes sleep and happiness and allows your muscles to relax. That's why many of the benzos also are muscle relaxants as well, because anything that produces GABA is going to be a neural inhibitor that will shut down the obsessive thinking, the anxiety, and also the sympathetic nervous system, which tightens your muscles. So if you wanted to raise it, well, you could walk over to a store that sells L-theanine, which is actually synthesized by, of all things, green tea, 
L-theanine will actually raise your GABA levels. It will give it's a progenitor or a precursor, so your brain builds GABA from it. Uh, also, meditation, and you're going to hear a little theme. <laughs> meditation significantly increases the GABA receptor sensitivity, so you are actually going to respond far more to the, any presence of GABA, and it's going to allow you to relax and reduce anxiety. Finally, some degree of moderate exercise will not only raise GABA but serotonin, but two, and as well other, uh, we'll talk about other neurotransmitters, but too much exercise, uh, compulsive exercise, will actually do the exact opposite. Oxytocin, anybody know what that is? What is it, Steve? It's like love. It's a love and connection. Absolutely. Uh, oxytocin is the love hormone, uh, as it's sometimes called, but it's actually a little simplistic to put that. Oxytocin amplifies every single interpersonal uh, relational event in your life. So it actually can also make you feel bad. If you've just had a best friend say they can't deal with you, or if you've gone through a breakup, oxytocin is also going to make you feel bad in the aftermath. But it's most significantly also associated with bonding, bonding with a significant other. In fact, all species that have high levels of oxytocin are monogamous species, and species that have lower levels of oxytocin tend to be polyamorous, I guess you could put it. Uh, in other words, they're not. They, they partner with many partners. Human beings have a lot of oxytocin. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with polyamory. It certainly has been shown that people who are polyamorous generally have secure attachment styles. It simply means that they very early on had some social messaging that normalized it and made it seem safe, and it's perfectly legitimate choice. However, uh, for many of us, uh, monogamy is the safe choice because we're not set up, given the levels of uh, both anxious attachment and oxytocin that would make it very painful to try a different setup. Um, it amplifies empathy, trust. It, when, after you've had sex, it's what creates a feeling of bliss and connectedness. It also helps reduce anxiety when there's a bond. If you want to raise your oxytocin, you want to really make yourself feel better about the connections in your life, and you want to amplify friendship, hug, listen really attentively to someone, pet a cat or a dog, <laughs> and especially there's a certain kind of meditation, meta-meditation, which if you visualize someone that you want to send goodwill, loving kindness to, that specific meditation has been shown by not only Fredrickson and other people to significantly raise oxytocin levels, which can be like all the other uh, peptides and neurotransmitters measured. Now, so, so far we've covered dopamine is the fixated campaign, searching for something, stimulated, excited, waiting for a reward. 
serotonin regulates your mood, makes you feel basically good. It's definitely activated most by sunlight and especially human connection. Oxytocin is what allows us to bond with others and it amplifies every single relational event. What is norepinephrine? Anybody heard of that one? Okay. That is your brain's version of adrenaline. It's uh, stress that actually, stress hormone that actually is released after important emotionally resonant events and it mobilizes us to act. But it's not a bad thing. Cortisol, when it's triggered needlessly bad, ages, leads to mental illness, has all kinds of um, ramifications for your immune system. Norepinephrine actually makes you feel a sense of agency and an ability to take action in your life. And in fact, many neurotransmitters actually help uh, regulate norepinephrine. SSNIs are a new class of antidepressants with serotonin that keep your norepinephrine at a regular level so that people generally don't feel exceedingly anxious. The more adrenaline with serotonin, the less anxious you feel, and you'll feel you're capable of facing any challenges that come across your path. Uh, If norepinephrine is activated in a very prolonged stress, it'll trigger uh, cortisol and it will lead to insomnia. But it can, if it's, uh, be very effective if it's regulated. And if it, you're under, if you have too little norepinephrine, like dopamine, if you're, there's too little of it, you'll feel tired, depressed, and in a brain fog. So just like we need dopamine, we need norepinephrine. Now for my favorite one, and pretty much the last one I'll cover in any detail, I'll mention a couple of others, uh, but... The last one is endorphins. So people tend to think that dopamine, because it's called the reward neurotransmitter, is the pleasure. It's not. Dopamine simply makes you excited and aroused, and it makes you seek something. But it actually is not associated with pleasure. Dopamine is the hunt for the bargain, hunt for the sex, hunt for the, you know the food or whatever, hunt for the shoes we need to buy, hunt for the, you know, whatever, the the payoff. It doesn't actually feel that great. It simply feels exciting. Endorphins, on the other hand, create pleasure, create bliss. The uh, It's our opioid system, and it's why people become addicted to heroin and Oxycontin. Uh, which are opioids. Um, Dopamine, uh, sorry, uh, endorphins switch off the dopamine. So when you buy some, you finally find the thing you want to buy, you finally meet the person that you've been searching for because you're lonely or you finally get the payoff, what switches off the search for more, the addictive hunt, is getting the endorphins. And the endorphins create bliss and meditation. So yes, meditation not only raises um, oxytocin, 
not only raises serotonin, it also raises the presence of opioids in your system, which make you feel good. Um, what raises endorphins naturally so you can have a sense of bliss in your life? Well, just like oxytocin and serotonin connecting with people, the more you feel positively addressed, seen, heard, listened to, the more endorphins will be present. That's due to the, and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is essentially the social lever in your brain that lowers your endorphins and makes you feel really shitty when there's been a breakup or you feel ostracized or disconnected with by others. But if you connect with people and you feel really seen and heard, accepted, you feel you've been invited to an event, you feel included, it will raise your endorphins and your body will feel better as a result. Cardio, famous way to raise if you know how to responsibly get about 20 to 30 minutes of cardio a day, then you'll keep your endorphins levels generally at a pretty good rate. You'll start to feel really good. However, people who addictively um, uh, exercise, who, you know, sometimes people who become long distance runners struggle to maintain endorphins because actually their system habituates to the amount of cardio and they need more and more and more to get the same amount. Sex raises endorphins, of course, and good old chocolate. Chocolate raises both uh, oxytocin and endorphins. So if you want to feel a little better and you don't want to meditate or connect with someone... <laughs> Chocolate. I should have said with, by the way, the GABA, which reduces anxiety, another way that people introduce that into the system is drinking. <laughs> Alcohol. I don't, I've been sober for 24 years, so I've had to develop a whole host of other ways to raise my GABA levels naturally. But Alcohol is a GABA delivery system. In fact, alcohol is essentially benzodiazepines in a liquid form. Or you could put it the other way, benzos are alcohol in a pill form. Quick notes. Cortisol we've covered. If they're elevated due to excessive chronic stress in your life, it's extremely damaging, leads almost invariably to mental illness, short life expectancy, fucks with your immune system and ages leads to cell death and also excessive amounts of fear. So doing practices that diminish cortisol and addressing it is exceedingly important. And lastly, melatonin, you probably heard of it, regulates sleep. Generally this time of year, our bodies endogenously have higher levels of melatonin because uh, we are actually meant to hibernate this time of year, not actually be doing very much. But if you do have sleep deficits, I would urge you not to go out to a store and buy melatonin. Because if your body is producing uh, too little melatonin, 
you're not going to be able to meaningfully address it and essentially help it by buying the supplements that generally, A, don't have it regulated, B, are going to then create even greater dysregulation of the dopamine. And to have a regular sleep cycle, digestion cycle, we shouldn't be fucking with melatonin. If you do have issues with sleep, address the deficiency of GABA and serotonin. So, you know, essentially, uh, if it's serious, very basic courses of actions like a tricyclic antidepressant will address both anxiety and insomnia in a far safer way, and it's not addictive. So you can get on it and then get off it rather than uh, try to hack your brain with something that's not going to work. So... um, problem with us human beings is that if we were set up to be happy and blissful and joyous, then our brains would have far more endogenous endorphins and and, uh, oxytocin and uh, GABA present than we do. Our brains were actually set up first and foremost were hardwired to survive. And the neurotransmitter most associated with survival besides stress, cortisol, which helps us respond to fear, and generally adrenaline, norepinephrine, but is dopamine. Dopamine was the neurotransmitter that got us to get out of our huts where we were safe and go off into the world to hunt for food and to hunt for resources and to collect things that would allow us to have tribal, enhance our tribal status. So we tend to now have far more dopamine already synaptically present than we need, unless you you suffer from monopolar depression, then that's the one case where it wouldn't be, you would have too little. So generally what we need in life are practices that create a sense of well-being but do not stimulate the dopamine system, because while that's stimulated, all the other systems that create well-being, such as GABA and serotonin, and uh, especially endorphins, are going to be diminished. There's like a lever. Once you get what you need, then it allows the other systems that raise the feeling of well-being to kick into effect. So... If we want to develop a practice, we would want something that was reliable, gave a sense of well-being that was not unpredictable so it wouldn't trigger dopamine. It would help us maintain calm so it would activate GABA. And then it would create pleasure that would help produce endorphins. And it so happens Buddhists have been doing this for 2,500 years. And for the low cost of $10, I will. (laughs) So this is the very basic concentration exercises that Buddhists have been doing. And I'll tell you why in each step it actually triggers or synaptically increases the presence of the neurotransmitters you want. Well, one... Concentration exercises generally work with stimuli that you do not have to create or ongoing and create the exact same amount of stimulus. So they deactivate 
the dopamine reward system. Yet at the same time, because you're focusing your attention, it allows just enough norepinephrine to keep that sense of uh, that sense of agency, that sense of engagement. But it doesn't produce enough norepinephrine by any means that it causes anxiety. So we start out with a breath meditation, or if you don't like working with the breath, we, you can use sound. But I generally would encourage us for this practice to try with the breathing in and out, and that's what the Buddha recommended some 2,500 years ago, to simply know when you're breathing in and know when you're breathing out. You don't have to know anything else. And we find an area of the body where you simply observe the breath. That switches off, again, the dopamine craving, wanting, searching. And it will actually trigger the, as we said, the norepinephrine. And just doing that will start to produce, because you're not going to be focusing on the ventromedial thoughts about self, what's going to happen to me, what do other people think about me that triggers cortisol needlessly and stress. Focusing your attention on something that is not triggering will actually uh, significantly help create a sense of well-being. But then what we're going to do is we're going to wait until the breath becomes really subtle, really, really soft, so that it almost feels like there's very little sensations present. And then we're going to switch our attention to any feeling in the body that's pleasurable. Now, very often that will be your hands, or it will be maybe a sensation in the chest, we call the heart center. It could be a sensation that's in the middle of the forehead, or you might feel ease anywhere else. There's no wrong place in the body to find a sense of ease, a lack of contraction or tension, anything that feels at all pleasant. Then what you do is you pull your attention away from the breath and just focus on that pleasant sensation and really, really pay attention to any part of it that feels good and try to with, you know, encourage it to spread, welcome it, reduce any tension or tightness around it and just allow the sensation to spread. That has been shown to raise GABA levels and will reduce anxiety. Finally, as we are in that and we really spread the pleasant sensation as much as we can through the body, that will also finally trigger endorphins, which will actually make your body feel really relaxed and will make you feel like you're having that warm hug that... Um, people get when they use or they trigger endorphins or the opiate systems in their brain. It's not, it's not surprising that heroin addicts report that uh, they used heroin because it gave them the feeling of being hugged and loved, which they didn't get enough of in their early life attachment structures. So... Hopefully, uh, we won't be using heroin tonight. <laughs> uh, but what we will be doing was we'll be raising the levels of the, the brain's natural anxiolytic and anxiety reducing. We're going to raise serotonin. We're going to raise endorphins. But we're not going to do it the normal way we try to get 
uh, some sense of excitement or pleasure through checking our phones or uh, searching for bargains or uh, anything like that. So I hope that that was worthwhile, a little interesting. Uh, so now we're going to meditate, doing the exact process that we've talked about. Oh, and at the very end, we're going to switch the meditation at the very end to a meta-meditation so we can trigger some of that oxytocin, that positive social bonding, which hopefully will also activate a little bit more serotonin. So hopefully at the end of this, you'll all be blissed out, floating off into a cloud of well-being. And if not, keep trying. (laughs) So closing the eyes, and let's just come to a really settled... Take a nice... Full in-breath through the nose, and while you're breathing in, lift the shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears, hold them up, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, rotate your shoulders back so you're opening up your chest, and that actually, an open chest actually stimulates the vagal break, which should slow down your heart, which should help reduce anxiety a little bit. Taking a second in-breath and squeezing the abdomen tight or pushing it out. Whatever feels most awkward, do it. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, really soften, soften the abdomen so you get that nice, relaxed, soft belly. That's where the dorsal vagal nerves are clustered and relaxing it also tends to switch off the sympathetic nervous system which creates the fight flight state so soft belly open chest and then the third in breath squeezing the muscles in the face really tight squeeze 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 and then as you breathe out Really soften. Especially release the jaw. Soften the micro muscles around the eyes. And gently, if you can, tilt your head a little bit up, like you're looking at a tall building or soaking in the sun. And we're simply doing that to incline the head away from slouching in front of the chest. Now, if a very, very unforced, subtle, not in any way false smile is available, that actually 
stimulates the secretion of both serotonin and other, I believe as well, uh, um, some endorphins, I'm not sure about that, but definitely serotonin. But if it's, if you don't feel like, and so many of us have been told to smile, so don't smile if it doesn't feel authentic. Just allow your face to find a good resting position and see if you can encourage your eyes to relax into the sockets. Now just find a sensation associated with the breath in your body. It could be just air entering and leaving the tip of your nose. That's fine, but that's not the only place. You can just observe the belly swelling and contracting or the chest expanding and releasing. Or there could be this sense of energy moving up the body as you breathe in and then a sense of release of energy down the front of the body as you breathe out. And while it can be helpful to incline the breath so that the exhalations are as long and smooth as possible, but if that's not available, don't worry about it. The key is simply trying to stand back and observe the steady sensation of the breath, knowing that if you sustain awareness over a long enough period, it will start to activate natural anxiety and stress reduction neurotransmitters and hormones. Now, of course, other thoughts will seek your attention as well as other sensations, sounds from the outside. Memories of interpersonal events, worries, concerns, or plans for the future, perhaps preoccupation with an unresolved issue, a person in life. And when that happens, just say, hello, just acknowledge it and allow it to be in the background of your awareness but try to keep that sensation of the breath now to keep the breath in mind you can if it's difficult you can count breaths counting one on the in two on the out three on the next in breath four on the next out.
And when we reach five, start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. Counting from one to five and back down. <coughs> If a thought does, or an outside sensation, but especially a thought, a memory, a concern, anything grabs your attention, just first relax your body, give yourself a really rewarding full in-breath, soft out-breath, relax back into the present. No judgment or frustration. It's totally natural. The brain, due to our evolutionary settings, has us needlessly primed to look out for threats and opportunities more than we need to, given our current status as the dominant species. We don't need to be constantly on alert. So there's no sense you've done anything wrong or inappropriate when you find yourself thinking. Just relax back into the present. Give yourself that really full, (coughs) replenishing breath. And trying to push nothing out of awareness, the sounds, other body sensations, Images fluttering the mind, just allow them to be on the stage of awareness, but keep the spotlight of attention on the sensation of breathing. And we'll just sit here for a while with the breath.
seeing if we can make the exhalation now be as smooth, not pushing it out, just gently releasing it. And making the in-breath now is shallow and subtle. Seeing how little we can breathe, but not to the point where it feels anxious about the breath. Just find a nice rhythm.
So if we were doing this at home, we could keep practicing until on its own the breath became subtle enough and the thoughts started to quiet. And when you reach that, that's what's called access concentration. When the thoughts that are annotating life start to quiet a little bit, where the breath becomes really subtle. But even if that's not, you're not fully there yet, that's all right. Let go of the focus on the breath and just find the sensation in your body that feels, or an area of your body that feels pleasant. Sometimes I feel a sense of ease, comfort, in that area that some people refer to as the third eye, slightly middle of the forehead, not quite so high. Sometimes I actually feel it in the space right between the eyes, subtly above, just right beneath the uh, brow, between the eyes. For some people will feel it very strongly or sense of it even subtly in the chest, Often the palms of the hands are a good place to find a sensation of comfort. But there's no wrong place. See if you can just find the area of your inner experience where there's some semblance of comfort, pleasure, pleasantness. And simply try to focus as much as you can on the, that feeling of an area of your body feeling a sense of a refuge or a place in your body that feels like a place you can bring your awareness to without any stress being added. Now, for some, if we've been chronically busy, it will be difficult, but see if you can find any area that is associated, or even, if it doesn't feel pleasant, at least this area that's not tense, that's not contracted. And just bring your awareness there and really soak in what it's like to be with your internal experience in a way that's not in any way difficult or triggering or pleasant, just when your internal experience feels good.
seeing if you can remove any stress or tightness around the area of your body that feels good so that there'll be a sense that this comfort or ease or pleasantness is not constrained. So if you feel any sense of ease in the middle of your chest, try to relax your shoulders, your belly, breathing into those areas to soften so that the pleasantness has more room. If you feel it in the middle of your forehead, or then you'd want to soften the eyes, the brows, again, to allow that sense of ease to have more room to express itself. If it was in the hands, the palms of the hand, you could breathe and move it up the arm. In other words, trying to spread the sense of soothing sensations in the body. So lastly, now that you've done or planted the conditions to raise the mood boost of serotonin and the anxiety reduction of GABA, let's finish this project by boosting oxytocin and endorphins, bring to mind somebody that you really care about or somebody that you have goodwill to somebody who's in some way extended themselves or someone in any way that you admire or care about just hold that person's image in your mind if their well-being in any way conjures a, a smile, that's fine. But just in your mind, whisper as you hold their image, may you be peaceful. May you be free of suffering. May you live with ease. May you be peaceful free of suffering may you live with ease and if that's too many words just I love you keep going
So I'm going to ring the bowl in a second, and when you I encourage you to take your time and don't open your eyes and look around. You'll probably then uh, disconnect from the sources of ease and uh, well-being to the degree that those states have been cultivated. You want to slowly integrate sight into your awareness so that you bring embodied mindful awareness with you the more you're aware of your body, the smarter the choices you make because you're fully integrating messages from both hemispheres of the brain. If you only are aware of your thoughts and not your body, then you're only integrating consciously messages from one hemisphere. 